few, uh, about a month ago, we hosted a, a night at our house um, for newer people at Hillcrest. Uh, we, we, if they, they started to show up here in the last few months, we invited them to come out, have some dinner so we could meet them. They've been drawn here by God's grace and God's mercy, that vision we have of pursuing new life together in Jesus. There's people who are being compelled by that. And, and uh, they joined, uh, we had some over to our house uh, on a Thursday night, and a couple of them have just moved here from Arizona. And uh, we talked about, well, what, what brought you here is interesting. They said, well, things in Arizona aren't going well. There's some challenges that the state is facing. And they were talking more than the Cardinal, Cardinals football season. You know, they were talking about uh, significant things taking place in Arizona. In that part of the country, there's been a drought for over 20 years. And the drought is becoming so extreme. The Colorado River that brings water to over 40 million people in Arizona has dropped so low that there's a crisis. And, and six cities in that state have declared water shortages. And so this, these families have moved here to get away from that challenge that, that the state is facing. Here's a picture from Lake Mead there, and you can see just how low it is. Lake Mead is fed by the Colorado River, and it stores up water for the cities and communities uh, downstream. And that water scarcity is a real issue. So we have some new friends in Kansas City that have been taking part here at Hillcrest. This idea of scarcity uh, hits us as well. Maybe not in the same ways as in Arizona, but but we face scarcity when it comes to our time. You know, sometimes it feels like our time is scarce. Sometimes it feels like our own energy is somewhat thin or that our resources are scarce, our finances. When, when things feel tight and limited and restricted, it's hard for us to live open-handedly, to live generously with those around us. When we aren't sure we have enough hours in the day to complete the to-do list, or when we're not sure we've got enough in, uh, knowledge to parent our kids or to get the work done, or when the bank account is bouncing against the zero line, it's hard for us to, to open up to others, to share with others with generosity. Um, we tend to, when we get in those situations, it's emotionally difficult for us, but we tend to, to hold on to things, to grab hold of things and not let them go. Living with a scarcity mindset makes it difficult for us to spend our lives well for the good of others around us. We grab hold of our time, our abilities, our money, and it's hard to live generously. But we know, we know that God invites us to live generously. We know that he invites us to live open-handed because uh, our God is a generous God. He's generous with his mercy and his grace. He's patient with us. He is generous with us and we're made in his image. So we know that generosity is the way that he's invited us to live and it's a way that we want to live. So how are you doing when it comes to spending your life? How are you doing in the ways that you're investing your lives to others, giving things away, allowing the grace of God and the gifts of God to flow freely out of your possession and into the hands of others? We want to live this way. We want to live generously. We want the Spirit of God to use us so that others might know that they're supported and encouraged and, and, and carried along in life. But when the river of supply feels low, it can be hard to do that. So we're going to take a, a couple weeks to talk about spending our lives for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. And I, I want to start by introducing you to a couple of generous friends in my life. Uh, this is Rosie and Vincent, some friends of mine from Chihuahua, Mexico. And uh, they are filled with joy. Can you just see it on their face? Uh, I, I got a chance to meet these two uh, friends about 10 years ago when the church I was a part of in Denver uh, got a team together and we drove a thousand miles south into Mexico to the city of Chihuahua and we met Rosie and Vincent. 
they are the host parents at Palabra de Vida, an orphanage there in Chihuahua. And I went to Rosie when I first met her to shake her hand. I reached my hand out to shake her hand, and she smacked it out of the way. And she came in and just grabbed me in a hug and began to laugh as she was hugging me. And uh, she kind of rolled me out of that hug into Vincent's waiting arms, and he wrapped me up as well. They are extremely generous people. Their love knows no scarcity. In fact, their love is somewhat ridiculous. It, it just pours out of them. I mean, look at the picture there, right? Don't they look like they love well? I, of course, here, I think they were laughing at me trying to order a taco in Spanish. I think that's what they're, <laughs> pretty sure that's what they're laughing about there. But they take the call of God in their life very seriously. This call to live generously. They, they spend their lives by creating a safe place for kids to have a home who don't have a home. They've created this place where there's about 55 or 60 elementary school kids to be, to, to have community, to go to school, to have food and shelter. And we as a church would go down and just be with them and encourage them and, and participate in what they were doing. I've had a chance to know them for about 10 years and uh, about a, a week for each of those years, sometimes two weeks during the year, I'd be with them and just to hear their stories, to pray with them and encourage them. And uh, over those years, I've tried to express my affection for them, although I really can't speak Spanish that well. Mi español no bueno is what I'll say to them, right? Uh, but I'll call them brother and sister. And uh, our teams, I would, we would try to give them gifts, things that we know, material things that we know that they need. And they would always give back to us more than we could ever give to them. One winter, I was down there, and we talked to their boss, the pastor at the church there, Pastor Jose, and said, we really want to do something for them because they give so much. What can we do? And he said, well, they've been wanting to paint their house for a while, and, and we haven't been able to get a team together at church. If you want to paint their house, I think they'd appreciate that. So we took an afternoon and painted their home, and then after we were done, they invited us in and proceeded to give us more than we had given them once again as they talked about how God had called them uh, into serving these kids. They talked about God's movement in their life, and then they prayed for each one of us individually. And just the power of the Spirit of God in their home was such a gift to us. And we walked out of that freshly painted house knowing we had received more than we had given to them. They are generous because they allow the Spirit of God to flow effortlessly through them. It's like there are no barriers of selfishness, no barriers of pride, no barriers of expectation. They just receive you with love and joy. I can say easily that I love them because they've loved me so well. And I want to be like them. And since I care about you as my church community, I want you to be like them as well. I want all of us to grow in our ability to be generous. So here's my question for you this morning. How are you spending your life? How are you investing your life? How are you paying attention? How are you giving away to others? How are you sharing favor with others who are lacking it? How are you spending your life? In the book of wisdom, book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, we read these words. Some people give much, but get back even more. Others don't give what they should and end up poor. Whoever gives to others will get richer. Those who help others will themselves be helped. Now, we know this wise saying is, is really not talking about the amount of cash dollars that you have in your bank account, but that he's writing about when he says poor and when he says rich, he's talking about a depth of life, a depth of connection with God and with others, a richness of experience in this world. 
Over and over in the word of God, we're invited to spend our lives generously. Generosity is giving more than what is expected. It's delivering more than what is necessary. Generosity is surprising and wonderful. It's when we give away kindness and grace to others. And we can be generous with all sorts of things. We can be generous with our energy. We can be generous with our time and our money. We can give attention. We can invest in others. You can give me a break. I can give you a piece of my mind, right? We can give all sorts of things to each other. <laughs> when I was younger, my dad sometimes would offer to give me something to cry about, and that was not anything I was interested in. <laughs> but, but we give to each other. We, we give, and, and when that giving is unexpected, when that giving is more than what is needed, it's called generosity. So I want to encourage you to spend your life generously. When we talk about that, again, we're not just simply talking about money. In fact, sometimes money might be an easy thing for you to give away. And it might be actually harder for you to give away energy or give away time or give away forgiveness or to give a hug. If you're having a hard time hugging, let me introduce you to Rosie sometime. She'll help you with that. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to call you to evaluate your level of generosity the generosity in your life, not based on the amount, only on the amount of money you give away, but, but based on the ways you spend your life. We're going to talk about your clock, we're going to talk about your hands, we're going to talk about your wallet, or as some other wordsmiths have, have said, your time, your talent, and your treasure. These different things that we can invest in the lives of others. And we're going to be doing this because Jesus had some pretty harsh words for those who held on tightly to what they had. He had some pretty strong words for those who had a difficulty sharing and being generous with their lives, especially when it came to those who were suffering. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible and open up to Matthew 23. And we're going to look at just two verses here in Matthew 23, if you want to open up your, your Bible app on your phone or your Bible there. And we're going to look at Jesus' words to some of the religious leaders in his community at that time. In Matthew 23, there's seven different woes that Jesus says. This is just a few days before he died on the cross. And he said these seven woes to the religious leaders. Seven times he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And when he says woe, W-O-E, I often, my mind often thinks about the other woe that sometimes we say W-H-O-A when you're riding a horse and you say woe, right? And you say that to slow the horse down. In some ways, that's what Jesus was saying to these leaders. He was saying, hey, slow down. Think about where you're going. Think about the direction that you're living your life. You're on the wrong trail. Jesus was saying the trail you're on leads to death. So slow it down, turn around and head in a different direction. Where you're heading is not where you want to go. So Matthew 23, verse 23, this is the fourth woe out of seven. And Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The gnat and the camel, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, I want to read that to you again in a, in a paraphrase of the Bible. So most of you have a Bible or have one on your phone. It's a translation. A translation is when scholars, a group of scholars come together, those who know the original languages that the Bible was written in, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and they work as a team to translate those ancient words into our current language. And sometimes they'll 
They'll try to do it like word for word, very specific. Sometimes they're more like phrases to phrases. It's difficult to take these ancient languages that used a lot of word pictures and bring them into the English language. And then there's something called a paraphrase where you have one person who knows those languages and they might be trying to take like a theme of a passage and bring it into some language that makes sense to us today. And one of the more popular paraphrases is the Message Bible by a pastor and author, Eugene Peterson. He began translating it Uh, for his congregation as he was preached to them. And his words, the way he translated became so helpful that many, more and more people wanted to hear it. And so it became an actual, the whole Bible, the message Bible. So I want to read his, uh, his translation, his paraphrase of this passage. Here's what Eugene came up with. Jesus says, you're hopeless, you're religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. You keep meticulous account books tithing on every nickel and dime you get, but on the meat of God's law, things like fairness and compassion and commitment, the absolute basics, says you carelessly take it or leave it. Careful bookkeeping is commendable, but the basics are required. Do you have any idea, Jesus says, how silly you look, writing a life story that's wrong from start to finish, nitpicking over commas and semicolons? What would it feel like to have Jesus look you in the eyes, this great teacher, this great miracle worker, look you dead in the eyes and say to you, you're writing a life story that's wrong from beginning to end. You're writing a story with a weak plot and fake characters. You can do better, Jesus was saying. Can you feel that, what that must have felt like? He says, you hypocrites. What happened to Jesus, meek and mild, right? He's like calling them names. You hypocrites, you actors on a stage, you pretend you've got everything together when in reality you have no idea what it means to live a generous life, what it means to follow God's way, how to spend your life on the things that matter. And he says, you hypocrites. I think if we're honest with our lives, I mean, I can say to you right now, I've been a hypocrite. It's times when I've talked with people and said, oh, you ought to do this, you, ought to, you, should, you should see this thing or do that thing, and I really had no idea the best way for them to go. I'm, I'm tempted to pretend every day, I'm tempted to pretend today that I've got things together, that I know how things are supposed to act, when I really am still trying to learn alongside you. And Jesus says, you're actors on a stage, leaders, you're, you're hypocritical, you don't know how to live generously. He's trying to shake them out of their spiritual slumber, and Jesus is trying to do that to us today as well. He says, listen up, leaders, you give 10% of your stuff. You even get down to the spices in the bowl. You take 10% of that mint or that dill or that pumpkin spice, whatever it is, and you you give 10% of that spice away. You're faithful with these little things, but you're not generous with the things of more importance, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The Jewish law had taught these leaders, these people, that they're supposed to give of the best of their crops and their herds to God, that they bring offerings to God to honor him, to glorify him. And uh, it actually doesn't say in the Old Testament that they had to give 10% of their spices, but the Pharisees loved taking things to extremes. So they had gotten it down to even their spices, the salt and pepper in their kitchen cabinet. And Jesus doesn't condemn them for that. He doesn't say you shouldn't do that. He says, alongside that, you're missing out, though, on the more important things. He condemns them for, for not spending their lives on what really matters. He's saying it's, it's easy to be generous with the, the easy stuff, the small things. Why are you not generous with the things that really matter? Why are you not generous with justice? Why are you not giving more than what is needed in the areas of mercy? Why is the way that you show your faithfulness not surprising 
to those around you. Jesus wants to see generosity in every area of their lives, not just in the easy things. And then he calls them blind guides. It's the second time in this pastor he uses that language. And he's taking them back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who called this out. And and they would have said that Isaiah was talking about somebody else. And Jesus says, no, he's talking about you. Isaiah said, those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. They pretended to know where they were going. They were actors pointing away to a destination, but they had no idea how to get there. And they didn't understand what God was inviting them into. They didn't know how to live generously. They were blind. The pathway towards a full and free life was hidden from them. All they could see was this highway towards earned righteousness, which is really only a dead end. So Jesus brings up this gnat and a camel. He says, you, you pick the gnat out of your wine, but then you turn around and consume an entire camel, the largest land animal in the Middle East. And both of these animals were, were called unclean in the Old Testament. Leviticus, the book, the law, uh, the book of the laws, and Leviticus 11, it tells them that don't eat gnats and don't eat camels. You can look it up if you'd like to. And Jesus says, you know, you're following what the law says, but this is one of those moments when Jesus was talking where I think people would have chuckled a little bit as he was making his point. They would have laughed at this this image because a gnat is not big, right? And a camel is big. And uh, so just to make the point for you a little bit, maybe to help you grab hold of this, this is a picture of a gnat. (laughs) Do Do you see it on the screen? very small. Maybe this will help you. Let me help you out here. There it is, gnat, right over there. This is life-size, okay? This is the gnat. And now here's a picture of a camel, life-size as well. So you can see one is small and one is big. And just the way you just laughed there, I think that's what those listening to Jesus would have done, as he talked about, like, you're straining out this little gnat. You're making a big deal about getting the gnat out of the, the wine so you don't drink that, you don't take that in. But then last week, I saw you sitting down consuming an entire camel, you know, which those are nasty too, Jesus was saying. You don't want to do that either. But how foolish that is to get stuck on the gnat and still consume the camel. Jesus is saying, don't just focus on the small stuff. Make sure you're not cheap with the big stuff. Gnats and camels. For the Jewish people in his day, the religious leaders, the gnats for them would have been like giving the right percentage of their money away working on the wrong days of the week, having the wrong kind of people around their table. They made a big deal about those things. They carefully avoided the wrong things in in those domains, but then they would swallow terrible suffering of the people around them. They ignored those without families, those without homes. They didn't seek justice for those who were abused by others, those who devalued human life. They, They held back love and joy from people they deemed outside of God's family. These leaders made a big deal about their outward performances of righteousness. They called attention to themselves when they would go to the temple and give their alms and make their sacrifices. And then they turned around and walked right by people who needed justice, neighbors who were hungry for mercy, a community looking for faithful people to follow. And so the question for us today is, what what are our gnats? What are our camels? What are our Gnats, what are the things that we have strong opinions about, even though God would say, you know what, I'd rather you focus on other things. Can you, can you think of a gnat in your life? Can you think of something that you've got a preference about or a strong opinion about, and God might be saying, hey, you know what, that's not such a big deal. I want you to kind of let that go. Just, just settle down. Like something that you get judgmental about, and God would say, hey, just settle down a little bit. 
There's more important things. What, what would that be for you? Maybe you can think of something. I can share just a couple of mine. One, the first one's real easy. It's, it's not really that hard to share this because many of you probably struggle with it, but it's a, about my dishwasher. Like, I, there's a right way to load the dishwasher, and there's a wrong way to load the dishwasher. That's a gnat in my life. You know, the utensils go downward into the basket. You nestle the bowls together. Those red plastic cups never go in the dishwasher. My problem is when people load the dishwasher wrong, I get impatient. I get kind of amped up about it. My family steers clear of the dishwasher at our house because I got an attitude about the dishwasher. And it's really a gnat. I mean, obviously, it's like, come on. They're going to get clean in there. I need to let that go. That, that's an easy one to talk about. Maybe one more difficult would be like a sty- the style of music that we listen to, that we participate in on Sunday mornings. Like there's a, a worship style of music that I enjoy. It's the kind of music I, I engage with in a, maybe in a different way. And sometimes when songs aren't the ones I would have wanted to sing, it's harder for me to engage in worship. And I get reminded sometimes from Scripture that worship comes from within us and outside. It starts in us and comes out. It doesn't start out here and somehow come in. True worship is from our hearts coming out. And God says, hey, Nate, that's a, you don't hear your favorite song that morning. That's okay. I'm working. God, you can still worship even when it's not your style. That's something God's working on me about. What, what is that gnat for you? Is it a particular cultural movement going on right now in our society? Is it a person or a, a thing that looks different from your preferences? What is the gnat for you? My guess is the Spirit of God has got his finger on your heart and he's poking at you a little bit. Maybe, hopefully he's giving you something that you're thinking about. What are, if you can identify that gnat, then what are the camels? What are the things that God would say, hey, this is what I want you to think about. This is, these are the bigger issues, the things that we tend to let slide that he would say, no, no, this is important to me. Do you swallow the idea that some people deserve your mercy and others don't? That you should forgive some types of people, but other people you don't need to forgive? Do you swallow that? Do you consume and ignore those struggling to find housing in your neighborhood? Is that like a big deal to God, but maybe you're letting it slide a little bit? Have you missed opportunities to love the stranger that Jesus has called you to love, even someone you don't know yet? When we think about how we're spending our lives, how we're investing our calendars and our skills and our checkbooks, we, we sometimes get rid of that gnat, but we miss the camel that God is really wanting us to focus on. There's a professor and author named Scott McKnight, and he writes about this in one of his books. And he says this, It's an embarrassment to look at how so many followers of Jesus don't follow Jesus. Instead of serving others, we serve ourselves. Instead of using our power to sacrifice for others, we use power to rule over others. Instead of pursuing love of God and love of others, we're so in love with ourselves that we don't love others and we lose God in the chaos of life. God is inviting us to live generously, to follow Jesus who lived generously. One of those areas we can be generous is with our time. I want to talk just for a moment here about time and what scripture has to say about it. There's three things I want to talk about when it comes to what the Bible says about time. First off, time is is not infinite. The Bible makes that clear. We know that, but the Bible reminds us it's not infinite. Here's what Psalm 39 says. Lord, show me when my life will end. Show me how many days I have left. Tell me how short my life will be. You have given me only a few days to live. My whole life doesn't seem like anything to you. No no man's life lasts any longer than a breath. Time is a a limited resource, like that Colorado River. And we so often think or say, you know, I'll get to that tomorrow, or I'll have more time next week, but tomorrow is not promised to us. Today is the day where we need to be about what God is calling us 
to be about. If we're going to spend our lives for God's glory and our neighbor's good, we have to do it today. When you see a person struggling today, you stop and you ask, what, what do you need? What can I do to help? When you have time in the car with your kids, you ask those, ask those questions that matter. Don't just let the time slip by. Slow down. Think it through. Use time wisely because it's not infinite. The second thing, time is valuable. We see that in scripture over and over again. There's two ways that time is valuable. First in Psalm 90, it says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So time is valuable because we can grow in wisdom as we experience life. Last summer, we talked a lot about wisdom. We said wisdom is knowledge applied to life experiences, and life experiences take time. When you think about what are the experiences that will stretch us and challenge us, how can we use time if it's valuable? How how can we use it to challenge our spirits to grow in new ways, to grow in wisdom? The second way we see in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 4, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Again, we see time and wisdom here connected together. Paul's encouraging us to invest in the lives of those who have yet to believe that Jesus is for them and with them. Invest time having those conversations with those who are searching for what God is doing in the world around us, for his grace and his mercy. Make the most of those times. So time's not infinite. Time is valuable. Third, time is to be used intentionally. We need to think about how we use time. Ephesians 5 Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Paul uses that phrase again. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It says live in a wise way. Again, wisdom and time linked together. We see a theme here that time calls, can be used in our lives to grow us in wisdom. We need to use our time wisely. If it's valuable and limited, we need to think about how we use it. We need to say yes to the things God calls us to say yes to and no to the things that he says, not at this time. We need to use our time wisely. And I actually believe that as we give away our time to others, as we invest our time in ways that God calls us to, we receive back from him even greater things. That as we are generous with how we spend our lives, as we give our lives away, we receive back from the Spirit of God a different kind of life in return. Jesus said in Luke 6, give and you will receive. That sums it up. Give and you will receive. You will be given much, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will spill into your lap. The way you give to others is the way God will give to you. That sentence terrifies me. The way you give to others is the way that God will give to you. It doesn't mean that if you give somebody a dollar, you get five dollars back. But it does mean that when you give to others, when God works through you to bring his blessing and his word and his love to those around you, that you have a special connection to the Spirit of God as he's working through you, that there's a closeness and an intimacy that you experience spiritually, and that is what you are given back. Spending your life in this way brings joy, because the presence of the Lord brings joy to our lives to know that we're part of something greater than ourselves, that we get to be involved in the eternal, that the creator God chooses to work through us to bring life and love and hope to others. There's joy in that. Spending your life brings joy. Jesus said, there's more happiness in giving than receiving. There's more happiness in giving. There's more joy in giving 
than receiving. So we have this opportunity to live generously and to find joy in that giving, in that living. So I'd like to try a little something new here at Hillcrest. I'd like to create a different pattern for us on Sunday morning, something I want to see if we can kind of hold on to. And this isn't my idea. There's a church in Michigan that started doing this, but I think it's a great idea for us to consider. If, it's, if, if giving brings joy and we have opportunities every Sunday to give, then we need to link those two things together. So we often will talk about these little boxes in the back of the room, and we'll invite you to take your community, your connection card and drop those in the boxes. And on these cards, often you're, you're saying, hey, I'd like to help out in this way. I'd like to know more about helping out with kids, or I'd like to help out at Mission Adelante. That's a way of you giving your time, and you put those in the boxes. Sometimes you ask for prayer. So will you be praying about my friend or my family? They're going through this. You're giving them attention. You're, you're investing in them with joy. Then some of us put money in those boxes, checks and, and our gift, our offering and our tithes that we give. Some of you give online, which is great as well, but others use these boxes. So I'd like to relabel these boxes in the back of the room. If giving brings joy, then I want to call them joy boxes. And so they've got a new label on them this morning. It says joy box. We celebrate generosity is what it says on there. And I, and I want us to celebrate when we think about how we can be generous. So whenever we talk about the joy boxes, I would like us to celebrate a little bit because giving brings joy. So you say, okay, well, what does that mean to celebrate? So later today when the Chiefs are playing and they score a touchdown, what are you going to do? Okay, that is it right there. That is exactly what, how I want us to celebrate. When we talk about the joy box in the back of the room, I want us to celebrate. It doesn't need to be 15 minutes, but like five seconds of clapping and wooing, or however, what do you describe that noise? Woo! You know, that we can celebrate this opportunity we have to be generous. So this is a, it's going to take some practice to get this. Some of you who are more vocal people, this will be easy. Others of us are maybe a little more reserved. It might not be as easy, but let's practice together. I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to say those words, and I want you to do five seconds of celebration. Okay, you ready? One, two, three, joy box. Perfect. You got it. That's exactly. So it's going to take some practice for us to get there. And it's not always going to be that loud. I mean, really. Or, you know, over time, it's, it's going to find its level, and we're going to get there. But let's just practice one more time, because I, I want to get this in your minds. Whenever that word joy box, you hear that word, we're going to celebrate. Uh, I see some of you are thinking, should we do it now? Uh, so let me pretend like we're at the end of the service. And I get up at the end of the service and I say, hey, thanks for being here today. As you're heading out, feel free to take those connection cards, any offering you have, put those in the joy box. And the... There you go. Right on. I'm going to need to get some earplugs. I can tell already. I'm going to need some of those. And, and of course, this is, this is what we're invited into when God invites us to live a generous life, that we would rejoice and we would find happiness and joy in the giving and Jesus is our example of this, as he is in almost everything spiritual. He is our example. Hebrews 12 says, Let us look only to Jesus, the one who began our faith and makes it perfect. He suffered death on the cross, but he, accept, he accepted the shame as if it were nothing because of the joy that God put before him. You see, even Jesus gave because of joy, because of the joy that was offered to him as he gave his life, he knew this community followers of Christ. This community of faith would rise up. The church would begin. And so he gave with joy. So at communion, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, and we celebrate the joy that caused him to go to the cross, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have life. He spent his life for you and me. 
so that we can spend our lives for others. So I want to invite Nate and Natalie to come up right now, and they're going to lead us into this time of communion, a time to remember the gift of life that Jesus gave to us. And so as they come and direct us, I want to invite you to participate in this time of communion.